Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says the parts are greater than the whole. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This is the second of two parts of my interview with Marco Arment, the second employee at Tumblr, the creator of Instapaper, and the founder of The Magazine, an electronic periodical of which your host is the executive editor. We continue where we left off in the podcast that aired April 24th, 2013. You can find the first part in our archives at muleradio.net slash new disruptors. Now let's pick up where we left off with Marco. This trend line in your life clearly is you go from being in a company that got bigger and bigger and you left as the role for you changed. Instapaper is something you could put your arms entirely around and control every aspect of. And when you're working on Build and Analyze, as you're going through that towards the end of the run, this is where you were started work on the magazine, both as a concept and as an app. So I have this theory that there's some amount of creative energy we have in our lives, even those of us who are like ridiculously over-creative, some of the artists we know, who seem to be everything they touch is art. Um, but there's some amount you have. And to do the podcast, that's energy and time and whatever. So as you're finishing up that run, this seemed like the new flower that was blooming for you is obviously, you know, it's funny, even though I edit the thing, I never asked you about how much development time or when you started working on it. When did you start working on the, the, the magazine app? Uh, last July. You'd think I would ask this question. So, uh, so the, and it launched in October, right? Yeah, it was typical good timing on my part to start a brand new app with a framework I'd never used before a month after WWDC. And before your baby was born, too, I think. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, no, well, no, he, he was born when, when I had like a, a four-month-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, yeah, I, my exactly timing is timing. always fantastic. This is when – well, I have, I have another theory, which is that uh, that the male brain responds to babies by working harder. I'm not making any any uh, knocks on women at all. I don't know what women do when they have the baby if they suddenly – you know, what changes there. I know for me and for a lot of friends I have, the minute my wife became pregnant with her first child, something snapped in me and I started working crazily hard, like new projects and new things oh, and yeah. night and day. It was like – it was not like a financial fear. It was like evolutionary response. Must be a child. Well, that happened to me too. I mean, when you know, within within a few months of having, and this is this is our first kid, and so with, within a few months of having our first baby, I <laughs> I took over selling ads on my site, and I started selling them myself for the very first time. I doubled what I was charging, and I crammed a bunch of work into Instapaper, and then I started getting antsy and thinking, you know what, Instapaper is my is like by far my primary income. What if some massive thing changes and it goes away like you know what if every what if suddenly every major Apple site decides, figures out mm-hmm. right or like what if what if suddenly apple prohibits it from the app store for some reason and then that's the vast majority of its income so you know then it's screwed or you know what if yeah yeah what if something changes on the web what if what if bookmarklets stop working in new versions of browsers <laughs> because they change the way right. javascript is handled like there's all sorts of things that could that could that the government could, could criminalize ad removal for right, reader storage. Exactly. Reading. You know, we don't know. You never yeah, know. Or like you know, what if everyone switches to reading list all of a sudden? You know what? That everyone decides one day. You know what? That's good enough. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, it's you know, great, like you it's never fine, know. Right. You know. And so I I started getting freaked out about not being diverse enough in my income, and so I started the magazine. Like there's, and and then you know after a while I'm like you know what. I could really use another podcast, so I started. I started neutral. <laughs> like there's, like I totally. My theory is playing yeah, out. Yeah, your very theory well. applies to, to me directly. Yeah. It's funny, but it, I had the I had like a compulsion to start doing more. Now this is interesting because, of course, now you have like four 
well, five things that are going on, although the Neutral Podcast, I realize you've just done your final episode for now or maybe ever. But you that was something, I think, um, before we talk about the magazine, I was interested by that because, you know, this is something you're, – you're a geek, but you're also a car geek. So you've got – and you have your friends who are also very interested in cars, have lots of opinions and lots of deep knowledge that is typically not talked about the way you guys approached in Neutral because there's kind of this thing in the car geek world, which is very – I don't know what they call themselves. What do you call a car geek? I don't know. Gearheads, but, maybe? Gearheads, yeah. Like that's, I mean, the magazines, the television shows, the web forums, they're geared toward a very particular kind of cant. You know, like there's a language and a way of thinking about it. Right. And you brought this different mode to it. And clearly people liked it. I was seeing people talk about it. But did you have that notion that you had something uh, different to say than everything that was out there already? Pretty much, yeah. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to be like, – like most car shows – first of all, most car shows are named like – you know, maximum horsepower, velocity, octane, like, you know, the, the kind of like, like fast, aggressive, overly masculine terms. And, and, uh, and they, they talk about how many horsepower the new model, whatever has, and how, you know, how fast it went around the Nürburgring and all this stuff. And, and that's not really how I think about cars much at all. I don't really care about most of that stuff. I wanted to get to approach it more like, what we were doing anyway, which is three guys talking casually about <laughs> about cars, like you know, and not not about like the new Lamborghini, but about the old Honda we used to own, or in John Syracuse's case, the old Honda we still do own, and <laughs> and uh, you know, like we we wanted to have that kind of discussion, and there what there weren't a lot of places that were doing that, like not not a lot of shows doing that, and and that's one of the reasons why we called it neutral. You know, we, that was kind of like a like a cheeky name for it. Everyone else was like high drive velocity. We're sitting here in neutral. <laughs> you know, like we're going nowhere. <laughs> this comes back to this owning it yourself. Is that people asked you after you launched neutral? They said, "Oh, what's going?" You know, it's again. I don't. Why does he, everyone want drama? But everyone wants drama. It's like, how about a business decision, a personal choice, an ownership thing? You have your arms all around Instapaper and the podcast thing. This is no knock on Dan Benjamin. I'm on the Incomparable, which is on the Five by Five Network. Uh, it's and he's got a million shows that he's running. And uh, but there's this idea of. There was a point at which maybe it was made more sense to be part of a podcast network for if you're trying to maximize certain things, maximize, I don't know, income, listenership or whatever. But you have a big audience on your website already. You get 600,000 page views a month and you've got advertising relationship already on your website that you've got people, your sponsors you're talking to already for that. And you know how to record audio and edit it. So it seemed like with neutral you could wrap your arms around this in the same way you could Instapaper. Right. And and to be fair, uh, when we started out, I didn't know how to record audio or edit it. But, but I, I, oh, was that right? I took this as an opportunity to learn. <laughs> Fast learner. Yeah, like I, right. I bought Jim Metzendorf's uh, Kickstarter book thing on it and, uh, and, and just uh, learned and you know, taught myself logic and watched a few YouTube tutorials whenever I'd hit a wall. And boy, logic is not an intuitive program. But, uh, I'm still – I'm in the lower end. My brother-in-law who edits this, Michael Warner, the editor of this fine show, is uh, using uh, Pro Tools, which is something he's worked with for wow, well over a decade through different art incarnations. And uh, I'm not a Logic user yet. I went up from GarageBand to Audacity, which is free, to Amadeus Pro, which I think is 80 bucks for multi-track yep. editing. And at that point, I realized I need, a, need professional help because I do not have enough time in the week to do it. And that's when I was able to hand off to – to Michael for it. But I think that's a good lesson for listeners too, is that the self-starting thing, there's, there's a lot of tools for podcasting and that your notion that, uh, you know, even with, you had a ton of traffic, but 
I don't think that's the issue. You can find the right size audience. Maybe you had many thousands of listeners for neutral for each episode. Someone else might have hundreds. But if it's the right hundreds, that's also fine. It doesn't have to be this mass audience to make it useful to you. Right. And neutral didn't have very many listeners, honestly. I mean, neutral was – we did neutral because it was fun, mm-hmm. uh, not because it was a, a massive audience because it wasn't. And because it turns out that most of our audience doesn't care about cars and, <laughs> and the car people uh, don't like our show. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, and I want to get you too far. We got far off, a little far off a field with this because I think this fits into that rubric of, you know, how, how do you start things? And you're a self-starter. You teach yourself. I'm, a, I'm an autodidact too. It's like I need to know something. Most of the time I can teach myself. And if I hit a wall, either I'll take a class then, do something online or hire the expertise. But the magazine, this is a whole new realm. You were never in publishing before. Instapaper gave you insight into the flip side, like what were people reading? What were they bookmarking and coming back to later? What publications and kinds of things? But what spurred you into, you know, getting into publishing, which is just, it's a, it's a whole different world. How did you get this idea and decide to, to run with it? I really, it just kind of came to me, basically, uh, the thought path was first, uh, I, I had wanted to to take what was formerly called Give Me Something to Read and is now called The Feature. It's, it's Instapaper's recommendation site, the article recommendation mm. site, run by a human being, which is awesome. And I wanted to basically make an app, a standalone app for that, that would be free, and that would kind of replace the need in some ways for Instapaper's free version. That it would, it would be like a free app that would include oh. those articles only, that would act as a promotion for Instapaper with just a predefined set of articles. And I... I I was talking to an Apple reviewer about the geofence uh, feature of Instapaper. I, I had emailed them to ask, and, and I got a call back, which is always uh, tense. But I, <laughs> I basically emailed them to ask if I could do it, um, because I had just seen news.me had done it. And I thought, I can't believe that's allowed. So I, I emailed AppReview saying, hey, uh, can I do this too? Like, it seems to be allowed for them. Like, is this? Wait, you want to put? What do you want to geofence within Instapaper? I call it automatic location downloads or automatic background downloading. And it's, oh, I see. It's okay. uh, it, News.me pioneered this feature, which I think is no longer in existence. I think they shut it down. But uh, at least the app, I think, is shut down. But uh, it was basically, you know, in iOS, there's no way for an app to say like you know wake up every 15 or 30 minutes and check for new updates so it, it makes rss Ooh. readers kind of difficult and stuff like that so this was a way like there is this geofence thing where you can set up uh, a little radius and say well anytime you're anytime you enter or leave this point uh within this radius of that point wake up the app for a moment and then let it do some stuff and then put it back to sleep and so it was a way to kind of get periodic background downloads if somebody would put in like their home and work so that way they would you know mm-hmm. they would, it would at least update like you know two or four times a day and so news.me decided to use it for that and they called their feature paperboy and it's you know we'll just set your home and work and as soon as you walk out of there within like 100 feet then it'll start downloading your new stuff and it's great and that was like <laughs> it's it's obviously like it's obviously misusing a feature um and and trying to evade the uh, limitations of iOS backgrounding, and so I assume there are a few background. Lo- th- there's a few background location uh, jobs in some apps I know of that I won't mention that do the same thing. <laughs> right, <laughs> and I, I assume that would be prohibited. But just in case, right. I'm like I'm like, well, if they can do it, you know, let me ask Apple. So I had the reviewer on the phone, and they told me I could do it. In fact, which surprised me. Oh, and I and I asked them. I'm like, you know, let me while I have you, let me run something else by you that that I know is on the edge of the rules here. Um, could I make this app that was, you know, that was the features app, you know, could I make this app 
a newsstand app. So I, re- I really wanted to get it in newsstand. Oh, yeah. And you know the the, the friction point. The guy he never directly said no because it's hard to get it. You know, when you're talking to Apple, <laughs> it, it's like talking to a lawyer. Like you know, it's pretty hard to get a straight yes or no. <laughs> uh, right? It's it's like talking to someone else's lawyer. <laughs> um, so the strong implication was that because I didn't own those articles. Um, that it was it was links to other people's articles. So because I didn't own them, it would be uncomfortable and possibly not allowed to have that be a newsstand publication. Because that had already happened with uh, was it Pulse got pulled or had a problem at one point because of something they were doing with the New oh, York Times. Oh, that was Times. Some, that was totally something else. That was well, okay. That was just the New York Times complaining about their uh, their trademark being used. It wasn't even about copyright. It oh, wasn't about their right. content okay. at all. It was it was it was the New York Times felt that uh, I think this was the story. I think they. That they didn't want like an implied endorsement. Oh right! But, like the the interface made it look like the New York Times had endorsed this when in fact they hadn't. It's something like that. Flipboard has pulled some deals off like that. But you know, let me sidebar one second before the magazine is. You know, this is a long running issue that's come up with Instapaper and Pocket and some of the other tools out there. Is there's this tension between publications wanting to be read and worried about losing page views and if. My impression of Instapaper has always been you've you've skirted that by saying you have to load a page. And then you convert or save it. So the ad view still happens. Someone still sees a page. I know there's ways to get around that or to do things that are slightly different. You're inside an RSS reader and you send it to Instapaper. But it seemed to me you were always trying to preserve the publication's ability to reach the user, that you weren't trying to cut them out of the relationship even when people were saving the thing for later. Right, because you know, even before I was a publisher, I recognized that uh, – that Publishers are very important to Instapaper, and and it was not wise to have any kind of adversarial relationship with them. <laughs> yeah, and let's not kill them off either, right? That's the right, other and thing. it's and yeah, it's not it. you know there's no reason to like there's yeah. it's not like Instapaper needs to to uh, evade everyone's ads to survive. Uh, in fact, the, the main reason there's no ads in Instapaper text view is not because I try to remove them. It's because when I wrote the thing, it was transforming desktop web pages for iOS usage, and I had to strip out Flash and JavaScript. And mm-hmm. uh, it just turned out that that was most ads. But like you know, if there's an image or text ad in there, I don't mind leaving it. I don't really care either way. You know, people yeah, because people will scroll past it. And there's two other things. One is Instapaper was never an. It's not an ad removal or ad blocker software. It's a it's a read it in a read it offline thing. The the other that I think is. Uh, is funny is that, of course, you eventually released um, tags for publishers if you want to mark the content in a page. So the publisher, knowing that, could actually adopt ads that would reach Instapaper users if they felt like those numbers were big enough, and they could place a different kind of ad that would show up or put JavaScript inside it because you let, you know, I've got this on a couple sites I run. I have uh, HTML comment tags that mark to help identify what goes into Instapaper. Exactly. And and many publishers actually have done exactly what you said. You know, they have made custom ad units or or tweaked the formatting to optimize it for their goals or whatever. And so yeah, like there's it doesn't need to be adversarial. And and there are you know, there's things like the API with the RSS reader example you gave or the Twitter clients where like you can save a page without viewing it, but and that's that's just, you know, the reality of this business is that I have to offer that feature to be competitive. But there's a lot of opportunities for me to decide differently on how I do something. And so mm-hmm. one of the examples is like, like I, I think a long time ago, I, I never actually used it, but I think Pocket had a bookmarklet where, back when it was called Read It Later, they had a bookmarklet where you could like invoke the bookmarklet and then just tap a whole bunch of links on a page and it would just save each one of those links without opening them. That I always felt was, was over a line. Like I, I didn't want to do that. Another example is like when I embedded the feature and friend recommendations and everything into the app, 
it was basically a list of articles that you had not seen, that your friends or, or somebody had seen, and you can, you can tap on it to open it, and then you could save it from there. When I did that, I, I designed it so that you, you can't just save everything in that list without viewing it. Because I'm controlling the whole experience, I have the luxury of, of deciding how it's implemented, unlike an RSS reader or something. So I, I made that so that when you tap a recommended story that you haven't viewed yet, it opens up the story in a regular web view. And then you can save it once it's loaded. And so, so you've seen it, and the publisher has had that control. They've had that experience, just like as if you saw it recommended somewhere, like on Twitter or like you know any, anywhere else. So I felt like that was that was kind of like you know uh, gives the publisher saying you know I don't want like I could do this this adversarial way. I'm choosing not to out of respect for publishers and because I don't want to wreck everyone's page views and and steal everyone's uh, ad impressions unnecessarily. So, and that was a case where it's just not necessary to do that. And you're not, and of course, because you're not selling page views in 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 the app, especially, but even on the site, it's not advertising isn't this key driver of uh, revenue. So you're not trying to displace people's viewing habits so that you can get ads uh, ad views from it. It's a behavioral thing. You want people to adopt. The behavior of using Instapaper, which is a flat fee, a one-time fee on uh, on iOS. Now I've forgotten. Actually, this, is it a subscription fee online? I pay some other fee. I think, don't I? There is. If I want to get ads, there is a, an optional subscription on the website, and and you can choose then to hide the ad as in the list or not. But uh, and then it gives you a few other things. But for the most part, it's it's mostly just so that you can give more money to Instapaper if you feel like it. <laughs> you know, it's, right, it's so like, a, like a pledging support kind of thing for the most part. So that's it's optional and it's sort of a flat thing. So there's it seems like the I, I just I I want to talk about that before we get into dive in the magazine further because I think occasionally there's a feeling that not that you have an adversarial relationship, but that there's a taking. And sometimes I'll see, I don't know, someone recently on Twitter tweeted something at you about Instapaper, and I was like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. Like, there's not, you know, if I'm, getting pages into Instapaper doesn't actually increase Instapaper's revenue if the, ex- the experience has to be good. Uh, in fact, and, it decreases. And, it costs me hosting <laughs> money. <laughs> yeah, right. You pay more the more people view, right? You have to keep people from watching this. So, okay, so going into that, so you'd already had, you've thought about that. And so you're looking at the newsstand, talking about, the Apple review person about the copyright issue and what this could be. So the the answer was was vague, but you interpret that as no. Right. I mean, generally, when when you're going to invest months of effort into making something for the App Store, uh, it's it's very unwise to rely <laughs> on the edge of a rule. <laughs> you know, like if 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 your existence in the App Store depends on some interpretation of a rule, <laughs> like some some edge case, or well, it depends. You probably shouldn't spend six months developing that before you uh, before you know. <laughs> it's a little dangerous right. to do that, and pl- and plenty of people have, of course. That's the thing, and they've spent a lot of development time, and money, and it's gone down uh, down the drain. And for you, you have uh, you know you could be putting your time into Instapaper development, but it's reached a certain like it's got a certain level that it's been at, uh, or you could put it into this new thing. And so before you put it into the new thing, you have to be convinced that it's going to turn into something real that's an enhancement exactly so you know so i i, I was basically told that i shouldn't do that idea <laughs> and, and i thought okay so i regrouped for a few days and then I'm, and then it's like well what if i just commission some authors and make my own articles <laughs> like how hard could it be <laughs> and of course now we know <laughs> <laughs> let's take a break to thank a sponsor i want to talk about squarespace no Stop! Don't fast forward. Yes, I know they sponsor a lot of podcasts, but if you haven't checked them out yet, you should. You can set up an account without a credit card number and get a 14-day trial and see just how easy it is to create a website with Squarespace. 
Regular listeners know that I used to carve websites out of the living rock of the internet. But I have to reiterate that I've never used a tool or system for building, updating, or managing sites as good as Squarespace's. You can drag and drop everything. New items publish instantly. If you run into trouble, there's 24 by 7 support with live chat during the work week. Their templates let you produce great-looking sites with a minimum of effort, but you can also go in and customize to your heart's desire. Create one site, and it works in all browsers and mobile devices without having to mess around to make it responsive. You can connect up all your social media accounts to better alert people of new posts or changes to a site. And if you need to add e-commerce, you can set up a shop in a matter of moments. Want a podcast like mine? Click a few buttons, upload your audio, and you're listed in iTunes and good to go. What are you waiting for? Give it a try, and if you decide to pay for an account, it starts at 8 bucks a month, and if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain. But wait, I have a code for you. You can get 10% off at checkout. In the offer code field, enter New Disruptors 5. That's New Disruptors numeral 5. Check it out. Now, back to the podcast. Now we know exactly. That's why we know exactly to the minute how hard it can exactly. be. But it was an interesting idea. I remember when you launched it. Uh, actually, it was at Singleton Do that uh, it had just come out before then, and so you're with yeah, like it was like a few days before then that it was approved. Yeah, and it's funny. So the first issue comes out, and it's a bunch of it's a bunch of well known people, including Guy, the appropriately named Guy English, who runs one of the uh, people who runs Singleton. Uh, and so um, it was a great time because you show up, and everyone, all the other app developers. Their folks from, you know, Paul Cafasis and so forth. Everyone's like, all right, what is this about? And where's it going to go? And you're like, it's an interesting idea. I'm trying out. It was great timing. And that was totally an accident. I mean, I, I had been in review uh, for something like five or six weeks. I, there were, I think there were two rejections. It wasn't one continuous one. It was, I think it was like two rejections, just minor stuff like, you know, the, like the in-app purchase flow and stuff like that. It wasn't anything controversial. So I had to make a few changes and then eventually I got approved. And then, uh, and and it just so happened that like after all this time, the day I got approved happened to be like three days before this conference <laughs> that I was speaking at. By the way, so it was extra stressful. <laughs> That's right. And so, and you've got uh, the first issue it had like four articles. And so this is this is the fascinating thing. You got into publishing, and you did it in a way where you weren't sure it was going to come next, but you'd set kind of a goal. I, I've forgotten the exact one, but when you launched it, you sort of said. Uh, going to see how this works out. Yeah, I basically said, uh, if it's not profitable within two months, I'll shut it down. Mm-hmm. Because, and you know, in in much of my life, I have been uh, a latecomer, or I figured things out too late. You know, I think I think everyone's had this. Everyone who's ever tried to buy an individual stock has probably had this experience of like, yes. you know, you can you can generally figure out when is a good time to buy it, but you're rarely happy with when you sell it. <laughs> you know, like you can usually look at it and say, you know what? I wish I would have sold this stock six months before I actually did. <laughs> That's every yeah, every individual stock I've ever owned. Exactly. That's that is in fact the case. Even if I've made money, sometimes I've made substantial money off it. I'm like ah, but another two months and it would have been five times bigger. But but you don't know, right? So you have to pull the trigger at some point. And for you, that was you were going to get through. It's every other week, so you're going to get through about four issues and see where subscriptions hit at, right. at that point. Because you know, I, I didn't want. You know, I was self-funding this, and so, and I'm paying authors, and I and I invested a handful of months by that point into developing it, and so I didn't want to be just constantly throwing money down the drain if there if it didn't look like it was going to turn around, and and generally speaking, when you launch something new like that, you'll know within a day whether it's going to succeed or not. I mean, like you you'll be able to tell by how strong the response is. You know, you'll know quickly, and you can uh, see the curve. Yeah, exactly. So, and it worked out, but you know. The reason I set that was just because I didn't want to be stuck in it forever 
expectationally. Like, you know, it's, I was kind of writing that to myself to get, to solidify my own expectations publicly and to give myself permission to say, you know what, this is not working the way I thought in the future if I needed to. It's, well, there are two things that got me to get in touch with you about it. One was, I feel like there's not a venue now – now I can put on my editor hat and say there's no other venue that publishes articles routinely <laughs> like what we're doing. And in fact, so far, we've gotten – I mean I can prove this in that – in the time that – since it launched. We're almost at – well, I guess when this airs, it will have been six months since you launched that first issue. And we watched uh, Rupert Murdoch's The Daily shut down, which had reportedly like $30 million in setup and God knows how many millions per year to run the thing. They had terrible CMS problems. That's the running running joke throughout this podcast series is we always wind up talking about CMSs. It was very hard to publish despite having spent $30 million to build things. Uh, so that shut down. And then we saw Newsweek, uh, you know, shut down last year, one of the last big news weeklies in America. And, um, you know, and we've picked up articles from the magazine. Uh, the authors have asked me not to name where they came from, but two major publications for various reasons uh, weren't able to publish articles that were great and we've run two of those the last of them being very long form uh, drones article we ran uh, not that long ago so there are not that many places to publish for authors to find places to publish what we're writing did you notice that last fall did you feel like you couldn't find a certain kind of article you wanted to read as often uh, as you had before well when i when i started it out the first few issues demonstrate this pretty well when I started it out, I was really thinking it was going to be tech bloggers, as most of the authors, mm-hmm. writing articles that were occasionally tech, occasionally about like their hobbies and other stuff. But I really thought this was like – I identified that I wanted to address this hole that exists, but I think it was a, a smaller and different hole than, than the one we turned out to address. It was like you know if somebody like you know, John Gruber or Sean Blanc, like if, if they have – this site that is the proper place to publish a certain type of article, if they want to write some other type of article, they might not necessarily have an ideal place to publish that. Or like, you know, if Phil Schiller wants to write about how much he likes cars, where where the heck is he going to do that? We'd publish that in a second. Yeah, I actually emailed him to ask, but <laughs> he, he uh, I think, I, I don't even know if he responded, but somebody responded uh, <laughs> declining the offer. But, oh, that's too uh, bad. We'll keep asking him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but... I created it to address that one hole of people who have blogs on, on this particular subject who want to write something that's not on that subject, myself included. And right, because people people expect a certain kind of thing from you on Marco dot org that they're not that if you don't write it, not only do you get negative feedback, but you're not sure it fits there as well. Right, and even and and Marco dot org is is pretty broad because I've. I've just been that random over time. Like, you know, I can publish a thing about LED light bulbs and then publish a thing about bathroom fans and then publish a thing about <laughs> Apple's latest move and why it messes up with Google. And and that's not out of the ordinary for my site. It's true. And no matter what you publish, Hacker News is all over it. So yes, exactly. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be very supportive of whatever you Hacker write. News is great because it concentrates all of the troll comments into one spot that I, that I can oh, choose true. to ignore if I want to, although usually I unfortunately don't. But, <laughs> it does make but it, it easier. It'll, all the trolls are at least going to one spot now. They can, yeah, it's like a, uh, it's a honeypot. Yeah, and, and they don't, they don't <laughs> usually email me anymore. So, uh, 
Oh, my. So oh, because nice. they can get their bile out in one place. Exactly. This is great. Well, I wondered about that. <laughs> but there's, you know, I've talked to John Gruber about this. I've talked to Jason Freed from 37 Signals. There's this thing that when you have a laser beam focus on something, no matter how, I think, reasonable or focused or how much you show your logic and say, look, this is about me, this is what I think, or this is my company in the case of 37 Signals. We do this thing. We are better than email, but just slightly better than email. We don't want to add a bunch more features because this works and we know it and it's kind of what we want to do. When you won't respond to those people and change what you do because they like – this is the same argument you made in your essay, Anti-Apple Anger, that appeared in, in the magazine, that is that when you get to a point where people like a big chunk of what you do, but you won't change the part they don't like, that's when they get angry, not because they hate 100% of what you do, but because you won't become what they right, want. Right, because you know, they will believe the first 80% of what you say they agree with, and then when you say, well, we're choosing not to do X because of Y – and they think, well, wait, I like X. Oh crap! Like they, then they freak out. Like, <laughs> wait, that's what what happened? I I respect you. I agree with everything you said until this point, and now you're wrong. I I have to explain to you why you're wrong in public, if, then, if possible. And then somehow you're their enemy, <laughs> right? Uh, but then that's a function of the blog. But this is you know when we so there's essays like that. I, mean, I think that's. One thing that was great about the anti-Apple anger essays, I think it has a broader point. And I think a lot of the essays you were looking for in the early issues, and, and even as we sort of transition to something that has more repro- reporting and maybe more of a broad, like a more tenuous hold on technology than we started with, it's that kind of bigger thing. Like I get pitches all the time. This I won't be I won't mention anyone in particular, but because we're getting really interesting stuff from people, and sometimes it's tremendously interesting. And I read it and say. This is an anecdote, and it's a really good one. It's a really good story. I like the story, but it doesn't have that sense of universality where other people can relate to it. It feels like a blog post in the best sense of that, like a like a more like a journal post where you'd post this because someone wants to share a piece of your specific life, but it doesn't have that thing that like um, Scott McNulty's D&D article that we ran in the latest issue at this taping. Uh, you read that and you're like, everyone can relate to that. It doesn't matter if you play D or D or D&D or not or ever did or ever played a role-playing game. You read the essay and readers can put themselves into the space that Scott is talking about. It's a very difficult thing to achieve. Yeah, definitely. It really, really is. But I think we're, I think that's, and the, the, I think where we expanded, what I think has become interesting is, you know, you were very responsive to this as we started to get more pitches from reporters who are like, you know, I've got this story and it's interesting and I've gone out, I've actually got it written already or I have all the people lined up. We'd be like, well, let's, let's see what that looks like. And then we've realized over time that there's kind of this mix if we get it right. And I think, um, as we you know, were talking about, like, I think we have a fully rounded issue, this last one, issue number 14, where it hits a lot of different cylinders at once, where there's reporting and personal there's a little bit of a theme around games where things are organized but all the pieces on their own are terrific and we've had some really terrific pieces and other issues as well but as a whole it feels like it's an entity that we're covering different bases for different readers or at least i think we've achieved that at last yeah and we've gotten tons of positive feedback so far from people who basically have said that we succeeded in that so i'm, I'm very happy with it well, I'll just do that again every two weeks for the rest of time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> done. But let's, so the financial start, standpoint of it, uh, you, you famously, not that long ago, uh, uh, 
Planet Money wanted to write a blog post about what we were doing because uh, and there's there was some attention about different numbers and things and uh, and you're writing some essays on your website about aspects of this and so you know roughly we've got about twenty five thousand subscribers to this thing and people can do a lot of the math you gave some numbers now people can do the math they figure out the scale of it I mean I've I've said this thing publicly because we posted author rates people know how many articles we publish an issue is that we're paying authors you know hopefully this year it'll be about a hundred thousand dollars that's being put into this pool of freelance writing where there's not very much money available to freelancers and we're paying a a pretty decent to to good rate depending on the kind of writing it is and um, it's been interesting to get the feedback from writers who are wondering if what we're doing is the future uh, and it can be generalized or if we're an anomaly and we're going to be here for some period of time and then who knows what yeah and i think honestly i think it's too early to say which which is the case um i I think I, i don't believe in paying somebody a crappy rate and I also don't believe in asking people to work for free if I can at all avoid it. And so generally speaking, if, if given the choice between have somebody work for free or a crap rate or not have that thing be done, I will usually choose not have that thing be done or do it myself. I come from a modest background and I, was, I never had a point in my life where I could have afforded to take a like unpaid internship or mm-hmm. or any any kind of like extremely low like paid below market rate internship kind of job and a lot of people are in the same boat like a lot of people they just can't afford to go a whole summer in college without working for an income you know like or or to take a job after school or if you never went to school to take a job after whatever part of school you ended to take some job where they're going to either not pay you anything or give you some like minimal stipend that's below the cost of living in that area just to build experience or build a name for yourself or whatever, get exposure, you know, like that, that to me is total crap. And, (laughs) and there are people who will take those jobs who, who, who are in a fortunate enough position that they're able to, but that's not all people. In fact, uh, Jamel Bowie's article in the magazine talked about this a little bit, I think. Yeah, there was a lot of dispute about that because people brought up – he was talking about issues of you know, specifically, I think, uh, African-American uh, and, um, and a little bit Asian-Americans. But it is that issue of like if your family – was, what was funny that came out is there's two sides of it. One is if your family can't afford it and you don't have the money, you can't take an unpaid internship. So that, that's biased against certain socioeconomic strata that tend to focus more on minorities – who already don't have a tradition of being able to work in certain fields because there aren't other people in those fields to help bring them along. But the other side was that Jamel brought up was even if you were in the most middle class of minority family and you could in this generation afford an unpaid internship, your parents often tried to get you not to do it because they didn't want to recapitulate. Have you recapitulate the idea of working for free or badly? They wanted you to go out and get a job that paid well because you could. Why work for free when you can actually get a good job? Right, and and I think... You know, I, I'm a big fan of George Carlin, and and I really, uh, I really regret that he didn't live longer to give more of his uh, wisdom to the world. And I really do mean that sincerely. I, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. joking at all. Uh, that he really, oh, if, you. if you look at, you know, if you look at the things he said, especially towards the end of his life, uh, he became much more political and and much more, like a lot less about just crass humor and swearing, and a lot mm-hmm. more like. Oh wow, he's really right about that. Like, <laughs> like scary overall society commentary and political commentary, and he became extremely good at that. And I think he always was. He just didn't use it in his act as much before. His attitude is basically, uh, in many cases, to to cast severe doubt and severe skepticism on anything that 
your business tells you, like your manager tells you is, is what the business needs or what you should be. <laughs> and, uh, and the idea of, of all these giant, um, you know, media companies and like all these industries that, that make heavy use of unpaid intern labor or crappy payment rates, like the idea of them saying, oh, we can't pay you this, or this is all we have to pay you for this role. Uh, it's that's usually crap, and <laughs> and you shouldn't accept it. And, you it know, is, you should absolutely crap. not accept that at all. And and you know, if if somebody if if there's value in a job being done, then there's money for it to be done. And the sad part is that you know, if if you stand up for yourself, uh, and if you say like, you know, no, I'm not going to work for free, or no, I'm not going to work for this insultingly below cost of living rate, somebody else will step up and say, well, I'll do it. You know, and and that's one of the reasons why I try to remain independent because I control my own destiny in that way too. And I don't I don't have to ever be in the position now of trying to you know fight my way through everyone willing to work for free for a job that I would like to be paid for because I I've invented my own job. But but a lot of times you don't have that luxury. And and that was always, like it's a big problem in the startup world too. The startup world is is uh, famous for for trading equity for salary but the reality is most companies equity is never worth much (laughs) and and so you end up realizing oh i was actually working for like twenty five thousand dollars a year as a programmer where i could have been making 90 at a a bigger company (laughs) you know (laughs) let's pause for a moment to talk about a sponsor briefs is a mac application built for professionals who want to create prototypes of what ios apps will look like More of us are working with and creating apps these days, and we're not all programmers. Briefs lets us create practical designs and test out interaction without having to build a full app. Briefs can simulate what an app's design will look like and how it will work on every iOS device at every pixel density, and let you try out the prototypes directly on those devices as well using their free iOS app Briefs case. The program lets you hand off a completed design to an iOS developer who then doesn't have to rebuild media assets or guess what you want. It's an important tool and a well-designed workflow. It costs $199, and it's available in the Mac App Store. You don't have to be a developer or a software expert to use briefs. It's sophisticated but simple. Check it out at giveabrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. It's true. You look at, right, I mean, everyone looks at Instagram and they forget about Rocket uh, Boom and some other, not Rocket Boom, Rocket Hub and a bunch of other, the thing that became uh, app.net, in fact, was uh, Pick Please. There's like a bunch yeah. of services that were Instagram people. Like, oh, Instagram did great. It's like, yeah, and there were 50 other companies with great people. a thousand other companies. <laughs> yeah, who all, you know, doing that same thing. But, you know, this is where, there's this rubric I've had through the podcast series that I've uh, that's been developing further, which is that there's, um, there's gatekeepers and there's facilitators. I think, like I call them thin intermediaries sometimes where the gatekeeper is a conventional publisher or something else that attempts to uh, limit access to certain kinds of things because they have the printing press or they have the distribution right. medium. They have the thing that they can use. So they both control on the demand side, they can set a price. And on the supply side, the people coming in and providing content, they can choose to set the prices there too. And so they're the, this not. And the new model, the Etsy, Kickstarter, um, VH, VHX, video streaming, like all of these companies that exist now to bring creative people's stuff out, 
they're very thin. They take a tiny slice. They take everybody as long as they meet certain technical requirements or are credible. And their role is to facilitate as big an audience as possible, to fill the pipe as big as possible, and to help connect people. And I feel at some level we're doing that in a small way with the magazine is that we're providing for people who want to be independent journalists and uh, illustrators and so forth. We're another source of revenue from them. And I would say this is the two things that I mentioned in passing back um, before Singleton Conference uh, when, uh, when we met in person for the first time. That attracted me to apply to, to say, you know, send my own application, like, here's why I should be the editor of this publication, is uh, one was you were paying well, and then you doubled the rate, and two was it started with $400 an article, and, and then we were able to pay 800 which was great, and you retroactively pay, paid the early writers after, after the subscriptions came in the first few weeks. Yep. The second was your contract, which I know was adapted from another one. The contract that we offer, it gives – Writers and illustrators and photographers, they get their – essentially get their rights back after 30 days. That's an old model. That's what used to happen in the old days when you were a freelancer in the 90s and before. You'd sign a contract that didn't give up electronic rights because they didn't exist. You didn't give up perpetual rights because it just wasn't fair and publications didn't ask for it. They couldn't do much with it. So those two things together, I was like, this is the the model of – Publishing in the future is you're passing along more of the money that comes in so that it's not all concentrated at the top. Even if you're quite profitable, you're passing it on to contributors and you're telling the contributors that they own what they create, at least to some extent. You know, we want a copy of it forever, non-exclusive rights forever, but they can go turn around and post it on their blog, sell it, adapt it, create a radio play out of it, whatever they want to do. That's unique. I mean, what prompted you – to do that, coming new into publishing, you obviously didn't, you know, have 20 years history of looking at publishing contracts, but but still, it seemed like a unique choice to make. Well, uh, I, I've been approached a few times over the years by various publications who wanted me to write some column for them here or there, usually like a one-off thing. And I always said no. Um, with, with one rare case, I did write for Macworld once, which was awesome. Um, but I, I almost always said no, because I had a site where I could publish stuff I wrote. And... Sure, you know, it isn't ideal if I want to publish like a 2,000-word essay on my site. It's not going to be well-read because people don't sit through blog posts that long, even with Instapaper. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, that's that's going to be difficult. But I, I had a site, and I didn't want to invest a bunch of my time writing into something that would never appear on my site. And so I designed the contract to appeal to people like me. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I was originally thinking the authors would be mostly tech bloggers. And I wanted the contract to appeal to people like tech bloggers who already have places they could write. I wanted this to be an alternative and a competitive alternative. Like a small tech blogger who has really good writing skills but not a massive audience, they're probably not going to get 800 bucks for a post they write from their own site. And so I wanted this to be like an opportunity for them to make some good money and get some get a nice audience on something nice and long they wrote. And at the same time, make them not regret publishing it with me because they could publish it on their own site a month later. You know, so that's basically, and that's a short enough time that even something that's mildly timely is still useful after a month. Uh, And so... It doesn't doesn't devalue the publication because everyone's publishing in different places. It's not like there's another site that's aggregating everything we do a month later. Exactly. And so I set up the rights and the contract and the payment and everything to be competitive for people who had their own sites already because there's tons of great writers who don't need our magazine to get an audience. They already have an audience. They already have a place where they can write. The, you know, the, the big printing press owner is no longer there. We have the internet. Everyone can publish <laughs> to anyone. And so to be competitive, to attract the best writers and their best work, you need to have terms like this 
certainly there's going to be some writers, and we've seen, you know, we've seen with people we publish, like some of them don't even have their own sites and don't and don't write online much at all, uh, or don't write for their own blogs or anything like that. But that's not that's not the majority case. It's also I've found several writers have said, "Oh my God, I need to get my blog in shape or my website because it's way out of date, and I'm going to get traffic when this gets posted." And then thirty days later, I'd like to post it on my own website, and if it's not together, so we've actually prompted at least several people I know to start thinking more about you know publishing. And then uh, you know this Jamel Bowie who has an active website, you know I want to get into one last issue before we before we finish, which is about the paywall and part of um, you know your thinking how that's evolved. Uh, because uh, Jamel Bowie's article provoked an enormous amount of discussion, but not when we published it, because you had to – you could read the preview, but you had to be a subscriber, get a trial subscription on iOS, and we didn't have web subscriptions yet. So really only iOS subscribers could read the full thing. Exactly. So we ran the article, and then 30 days later, Jamel post, post, uh, posted his own blog, and then there's tons of articles, discussion, Twitter, Jason Calacanis says something horrible, of course, because that's his <laughs> – That's all he says. And <laughs> – <laughs> and uh, but then then there's an incredible amount of discussion explosion and I remember you saying I'm going to reveal secrets at the time saying we need to be part of that you know that was there was um, uh, a fellow who published another magazine uh, he and I got into it a little bit on Twitter and uh, he got he got angry at me I thought I was not being too offensive but apparently I was where I said we are on we are on the web we have previews people can read we're not outside the discussion it's just we made the choice that you know up to that point that if we want this to be sustaining, if we want to be able to make this ecosystem of paying authors and producing unique content work, we can't be totally on the web because we can't give everything away. You know, we could be more so. So I know that everyone else in the industry is an advertising model. So everyone else in the industry can have a website that has full content and has, you know, ads all over the, all over the place and has, you know, the stupid tint things to blop, to, to mess with your copy and paste and has the occasional double green <laughs> underline word that pops up a thing over the word you're trying to read. And then as you're scrolling down, uh, a thing slides in from the side saying, look at our other articles because we need more page views. And then you get to the bottom of the article. Oh, wait, no, it's not the bottom of the article. That's the end of this page. And oh, here, click page two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And that way we can get eight, eight page views out of you. And oh, here's a slideshow to get another 12 page views out of you because our advertisers are you don't have strongly held feelings about this. <laughs> you don't have strongly held feelings about this too. But and this so, is a good idea because the magazine has no, it has no ads, right? right? But it also means it limits where, where our money comes from. You know, we know who butters our bread. Right. But at the same time, there's all these assumptions from – especially from readers. There's assumptions that, well, of course, something that you're publishing digitally must reside at a public URL in its entirety for free. Um, because most people, most content does. Uh, and so, you know, it makes it hard for readers to share stuff or, and, and not a lot of people will see a shared link if it immediately hits a paywall. And so it's, you know, and, you well, know, going assume, into it, I get the question all the time, when does the issue become free? And I'm like, it never becomes right. free because the value, because <laughs> I feel there, you know, there's two sides that one is there's a value to the reader, which is we're telling them you pay for this and we're not just going to give it away at some point, you know, because you paid for it. You're actually supporting this. You're a right. patron You're of journalism. You're paying for it for a reason. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's a patronage. The subscription model for us, at some level, is a patronage model because we don't have advertising. 100% of the revenue is coming from people who subscribe. And there's, and there's a little bit, I've talked to authors about this who are fascinated, where by 
creating this paywall environment, we're actually protecting the value of the author. The author can resell, republish their work too, which which encourages people. I've had people come to us, some of our writers who might otherwise not have been interested in writing for us, except that not that they could resell it, but they understand that that relationship, that their stuff doesn't just go up and is available everywhere, that it actually requires someone to pay to see it. Uh, or at least more than one article, but that that was part of the evolution of the paywall too. Exactly because and and you know I should point out too, like a lot of people have asked, well, why aren't there any ads? Why don't you just put an ad there and fix all these problems? Mm-hmm. And and the answer to that is that uh, generally speaking, I like playing on hard. <laughs> and you know, like <laughs> like it, I, I like the challenge, and this is something that. Not everyone does this. In fact, almost nobody tries this. And and maybe there's good reason for that. I don't know yet. <laughs> you know, maybe the reason why no one tries it is that it doesn't work very well. I don't know. No, yet. but I see what you mean. But I think- you, didn't, you didn't try this. This is not a wishy-washy set of things. This is where you know you've written a lot about Apple and its decision making and simplicity. It's like simple ad, simple app, no ads, simple subscription model. Simple everything. It's simple presentation, like right. readable, fundamentally well-designed presentation. And this is it. This is what we're doing. Boom. Exactly. And it just – and having no ads makes everything a lot simpler. First of all, I don't have to sell ads, which saves time. Uh, and then – and you know, bigger publications. Like look at the staff of a big publication. How many people there are just the ad sales department? You know, It's a lot. And then the ad sales department puts a lot of pressure on the programming and layout people because they'll want to sell some kind of new ad unit that like takes over the background of the page or some crap like that. And, uh, and there's always this battle between uh, advertisers wanting more readers' attention and the readers you know, not wanting to be distracted and, and the people in the company wanting to keep their jobs and keep the money coming in but not wanting to make a crappy-looking product. And, and so it's, there's this constant battle with advertising in publications. And I think... There are some cases, like in podcasts, like I sell, I sell ads on my site, I sell ads in my podcasts. Uh, I don't fundamentally object to ads, but you know there are some contexts where ads are the only way to make a reasonable amount of income to pay for something, and I, th- I think podcasts and blogs are two examples where that's the case. Um, yeah, and and publications. I mean, we know this from a, we can read a million reports in the last ten years about about the the difficulty of getting decent ad rates for page views being page right. view driven. Um, and that's that thing is like this is where this is where I like it is if you charge a small amount of money and it covers all of your expenses because you only need a relatively small. I mean, twenty five thousand subscribers is not a lot. There's a billion iOS users now, aren't there? Or something or seven hundred fifty million. There's a lot. Million worldwide. <laughs> there's a lot. Hundreds of millions, right? And then there's you know billions of people on the web who could conceivably subscribe via the web. Now we need the sliverest of the tiniest sliver of a sliver, and this is a totally profitable operation. So we don't have to sell ads to do what we want. This is the same thing that came up, I think, when everyone was asking you, okay, great, you launched the magazine. When does the magazine become a platform? When can I buy, license, use the magazine to publish my own publication? And you wrote an essay about that. Right, exactly. Because, you know, I, like, you know, the magazine, the magazine can exist the way it does today because of Apple's newsstand. It's, it, that is, the, like, the reason why I have to sell an ad on my blog and I don't have to sell an ad in the magazine is because the magazine qualifies to be in this thing that is a structure for people to pay very easily on a recurring basis. That's why that works. That's why I wanted to get into Newsstand to begin with. That's why it caught my attention. And it's because this is a place where that business model is actually plausible. And on the web, it's way harder. You know, On the web, 
people expect all content to be free and and you can get some people to pay but it's just way harder and it won't be nearly as many this is where the timing is great though is we're in the middle of the great paywall transition and i think i think it and i don't think it's going to go back the way it was because the publications that are going to survive whether they're the big media publications like the new york times that figures out how to stop printing or to print in much lower quantities and focus online or the new ones like us if we thrive with this too the paywall is now reality despite years of people saying it could never work it wouldn't work paywalls all over and leaky paywalls all over like we've transitioned to as well explain this transition to the leaky paywall because i think that was one of our that's one of our most recent moves and i think it's a a significant one in terms of trying to be part of a a dialogue on the web exactly so so basically what happened was uh you know when when jamel Bowie's article exploded on his site a month after we published it, yes. and and it didn't explode at all when we published it. You know, when all this discussion was generated, basically after we lost the rights <laughs> or after we were no, after we were the exclusive, <laughs> uh, I realized that you know something here was inefficient, uh, something here was wrong. That you know we we had basically we were gripping too tightly onto uh, onto our content, and we needed to let it breathe a little bit. We needed to give it a little bit of ability to spread so that people could have discussions about it. Because one thing we found is that it, you know it's hard to convince somebody who has a blog or who has any kind of like readership online somewhere, maybe even if it's just like Twitter or something, it's hard for them to want to link to something if they know that most people who click the link won't be able to read it. Mm-hmm. And so if they, if they find this great article in the magazine, they would share it, but if they post that link, half their followers will, or almost all of their followers who aren't existing subscribers would hit a wall and would complain. And, you know, that reduces the value of them linking to it. And so inbound links were just not happening very often. The website was, was barely anything because I originally thought, well, the entire business will be in the iOS app, basically. And the website right. barely needs to exist at all, except to point to the iOS app. And, uh, and I realized over time that that was, you know, we were we were getting enough subscribers on iOS to keep the business afloat, but it just was never going to grow past this small group if we kept it that way. You know, it was it was never going to grow past the audience of people who had already discovered it for the most part. Like to get new people in, we have to have people sharing our articles and attracting new viewers, and that was just not going to happen with with just the app and with everything being paid only, and so. I decided after seeing this this thing with Jamel's article, you know what? We need that discussion to happen when we publish something, not when the author republishes it a month later on their site. Like we 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 should have that. We should own that. And I'm sure it's not always going to be the case. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times it won't be the case that it'll happen that way, but we should at least give it the chance to. And so that's when I decided, all right, we need we need web subscriptions first of all. Because we, we need some way for people who click this who click links to these stories to be able to subscribe who don't have iOS devices and, or who don't want to use them. And I need to be able to give like free trials. Like we need to we need to be able to let someone link and let that link be let that link work for almost everyone who clicks on it. So that somebody who has a blog or Twitter followers will link to it. Yeah, this is and and will know that confidently that most people will be able to see that. 
this is fascinating too. Is one of the uh, we have interesting reviews in the App Store. We have a lot of positive reviews of the app by by ratings by stars, and a lot of the actual written reviews tend to be negative because they don't like our content choice or our business model. And one of them pointed out said the only way to make something like this work is to have hundreds of articles. You have to be posting tons of stuff every day. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And I'm thinking what? staff money, blah, you know, whatever. <laughs> but but that's one of Wait, our. You actually read those parts. reviews. I, listen, I do this so you don't have you, to. Uh, that's, <laughs> app Development 101, don't read your iOS, your, your, your iOS App Store reviews. I, uh, <laughs> I've, I've learned a few things from this. It's interesting. It's interesting, but it's not representative. The biggest part is it's not representative. Right, that's enough. why. You have 20 reviews <laughs> for a 25. Yeah, but, but it was an interesting, interesting observation about that. It's interesting to see where people are wrong in their assumptions about things that you know because you know the numbers and you know how it's working. So you see someone look on the outside and say, this is a bony-plated rhinoceros, and you realize it's not. But the the thing about our site, our publication, I think that's, um, it's not completely uh, unusual, but it, or completely, it's not unique, but it's not totally uh, out there, is only 10 articles every four weeks. So you can't give away that much. If you gave away, if you let people read three articles a month, that's too much. Yeah, that's, that's you know, a third of one every week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, then it, but it's only a buck ninety nine to get four weeks of it. So it's this weird trade off where we're not charging very much, but there's a threshold to get people to subscribe. But we're not publishing that much. We're doing very carefully chosen, you know, ten thousand to fifteen thousand words a week. So we can't give away too much because then people have no motivation to subscribe. Yeah, and and even I mean the pricing and the the publishing frequency. Uh, I, I set the frequency when we launched. I basically set it kind of arbitrarily, thinking. I think I can probably do this. Originally, for most of the planning, I was thinking it would be four articles every week. And then I, at the end, I was like, you know what? Every week, that sounds like a lot of work. Let me start mm-hmm. it every two weeks and see, see if people you know, think I'm getting, giving them enough value. And, uh, but when you set the billing price for Apple's subscriptions, you can't set the price for every two weeks. You can set the price for e- either weekly, monthly, or annually. Mm-hmm. And so I, I set the price at $2 a month, but what you're really getting is like, you know, 2.2 issues per month on average. Right. And so, but a lot of people think the price is $2 an issue. Yes. And it's this weird disconnect of perception where like I, I could have charged a lot more. <laughs> I get this a lot. People are like, you charge $4. They say you charge $4 a month. I'm like, no, we don't charge $4 a month. We charge $2 a month. You get two issues because it's every other week. So, but there, yeah, there's things like that that are difficult. There, it's not presented in the newsstand in a way that makes sense. And most magazines are weekly. So it's just this expectation that comes into it. But the, but the paywall that you implemented, it's really designed to let people read one article a month. So they can, they can, we, you know, if they, Start being referred by a lot of different people. That's great for us because then they're being told there's compelling content. But for the most part, we think people are going to say, hey, there's Eli Sanders' article about drones. I can go read that. They follow the link and they and they read, in this case, the first part because it was so long we split it up. But it's not a, a case of, oh, well, I'm going to read this and this and this and this. And I've gotten all my value out of it this month. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's a tricky balance. I think um, I think obviously we're still feeling it out, but I'll, I'll circle around back to the beginning, which is just that um, – I think your goal with the magazine is to have something that, again, you put your arms around, that it's something achievable by, in this case, you know, you on the programming side, the business side, all that, me handling the editing. And then we have this, I think we've had like 50 or 60 contributors now, maybe more, who are all at some level rooting for it to succeed too, because they'd like to write for it again. But also it's it's something new and different. And I keep getting that feedback that people 
are interested in what we're doing because it's it's different. And we're seeing, you know, BuzzFeed has a publication now. BuzzFeed's trying interesting uh, new things. Everybody seems to have an idea. You know, people are taking uh, websites and online publications and doing print versions of them. They'll do limited edition print versions. Politico makes a ton of its money from its inside of the Beltway print edition. It's done that from the beginning. And the books they make, the website doesn't make a lot of money relative to what they do in print. So there's all these new models, and we're one of them. We're not the avatar of everything that's happening right. out there. You are not the savior of publishing. I hate to tell you this. Oh, but, I don't want to be. That's a lot of pressure. Oh, God. I know. It was funny because people wanted to annoy you. Marco Arman in the Instapaper, blah, 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 and, you know, it was this whole, like, like don't put that weight on him because we're doing one model, and I think your whole point with the platform was this can be one model. There's going to be a lot of ones. We don't have to empower our competitors by making it a platform, but we're not keeping anything from other people. Other people can achieve this just as well in their own way. Exactly. Well, I think that's the end of it. Sounds good. <laughs> now we've succeeded. Thank you very much for talking about your your last several years of your life and all these things are working. Makes me, you know, some people think I do a lot, but it makes me exhausted to think about all the things that you're involved with. Well, I, I'm a slacker on most of them, to be fair. It, well, very good. Well, you've, then you hired the right guy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mark. All right, anytime. You've been listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast for and about creative people and the audiences they reach. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. Visit muleradio.net slash new disruptors for the detailed show notes and links for this episode, as well as to listen to or download any previous episode. You can use our site to subscribe to the podcast via RSS or click a link to find us on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. Click the contact link on our page or email newdisruptors at muleradio.net if you have compliments, complaints, or suggestions. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, drop us a line or visit sponsor.muleradio.net. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time.